Steve got the Nagas Falter of Galer Arashquig. Crayla, Pod Crayla, New Alumsa, Emma, Nirahali. You're all super welcome back to the podcast, Crayla, with me, Emma O'Reilly. This week I have a really special guest in the form of Millie Manders. very excited about this week's conversation because this is a conversation with an amazing singer, an experienced performer and someone who is out on the road more often than not nowadays with Millie Manders and The Shut Up. This is a cross-genre punk band um, that just, they're blowing people's minds everywhere at the moment and I'm so delighted to be able to chat with Millie today. Now Millie's one of these people where because our interests are so aligned as singers and as um, people who make music every time we sit down to talk we end up having these amazing conversations about singing and our philosophies on what it means to be an artist and how it's working for us and I always feel like I want to share the conversations that we have and so that's kind of what happened with this podcast. We just sat down and chatted in the way that we normally do. So I'm really delighted to welcome you into this conversation with the amazing, talented, hardworking, inspiring Millie Manders. delighted so look Millie was just one of these people I had to have on because every time we sit down and have a conversation I'm like everyone needs to hear (laughs) our geek out yeah we do geek out and you know one of the things that always like bugs me a little bit is you see all these interviews and press interviews with these phenomenal singers Mm -hmm. and musicians and they rarely if ever get asked about their musicianship Okay. Unless they're getting asked by like a specific magazine or yeah. something like that or a specific podcast, they don't talk about or they don't get the opportunity to talk about so much of what their work is. So you are quite a rounded musician in my opinion. You've done you play quite a few instruments and you play quite a few of them to a very high level. So your voice in particular. I mean, I feel like that's definitely your opinion, not mine. But my voice is definitely my first instrument and I see that as my prime instrument. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you do sax as well, don't you? I do. I play saxophone, ukulele and guitar. Mm. I would say uh, in order of um, competence, (laughs) it would go vocal, ukulele, saxophone, guitar. So, yeah. Nice. So your voice being your main instrument, let's that's a whole rabbit hole so let's let's leave that for a second but with your with these other instruments can you tell me a bit about the process of learning them and what they've done for you as a musician I actually started learning the clarinet first 
Um, I picked that up when I was seven and I did my grade five when I was 11. Um, and then moved on to the saxophone. And being the, am I allowed to swear? The uh, oh, yeah, go on. intrepid little shit that I was. <laughs> Um, I wasn't very good at the theory side of things. I found it boring, I found the mathematics difficult, um, and I was always much better at learning by ear. Um, and so I only really had lessons for about six months on the saxophone before pretty much packing it in at the age of 14 mm. um, because people were pushing me to theory. Yeah. And I could listen to something and replicate it. And I was like, why the hell do I need to learn what notes I'm playing? Mm. And unfortunately, that's kind of hampered me later because I still don't know what notes I'm playing. But I can think of a horn line and figure it out and then give it to people to either play better than me or play it on stage. So in terms of that instrument, that's how I work with that. Guitar, I'm learning very slowly because I don't really have the time to learn as fast as I would like to. But I'm learning a lot more about strength of my hands and grip and things like that and needing to be able to do that to do bar chords and stuff with certain songs, especially in punk, a lot of it is using bar chords, so I have yeah. to get better at that, so that's a slow process. Ukulele was massively easy for me to pick up, I mean it is an easy instrument, two, three fingers and you've got a chord, nice small neck, I've got small hands. so. That for me is much easier and, and looking at tab is really easy with a ukulele. So yeah, th those are those are the three instruments and kind of a very brief explanation of how I use them. So you've come up where you've had a little bit of that embedding of kind of the whole grade system, mm -hmm. which is a very interesting one because music education's funny in that respect, isn't it? It acknowledges only what can be measured and assessed. Yes. Like and cattle. Yes. Like cattle. <laughs> yeah. Are you a grade A piece of meat? And it's it's an interesting one because I gained a lot from doing grades, but it's I also wonder what I lost sometimes. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I get that. I think the the main thing that I really learned from being a classical musician as a young person, a very young child, was the discipline of taking a section of music that I couldn't play and repeating it until I could, and then repeating the sections either side of it, and having that discipline and motivation to connect those pieces that I could do and couldn't do, and making it smooth. And a lot of musicians these days, good or bad, don't necessarily have that discipline, and they have to learn that, and it's a lot harder later on. Yeah. The other thing was playing to a metronome. Yeah. Anybody that learns classically, especially as a child, you learn with a metronome be that a digital or an analogue metronome, but you are constantly there with that tick-tock next to you, mm. which makes your internal metronome so much better. I think as well, like, metronomic and kind of the value of being able to be precise um, with rhythm, to the extent that you can be precise with rhythm, is particularly important if you're going to be a recording artist, I think. Exactly. Unless you're very fortunate, you <clears throat> need to be able to work in a multi-track environment, which means... Yeah. Work into a click. You gotta work to a click. So just for those who are listening who don't know what multi-track is, it's when each member of the band records their parts separately. So the drummer might put one part down, the bass player might put one part down. It's really important that those things are in time. And one of the ways you manage that in the studio is everyone's got a metronome in their, yeah. in their earphones and that's what helps us to stay together. So that's important for when you're recording because econom it's a more economic way to do your recordings as well. Absolutely, because it saves time with the producer doing editing. I mean. You can look at artists like the Libertines, for example, mm -hmm. who actually did all of their recordings live. And Baby Shambles and those kind of acts, 
there's something quite chaotic about their sound mm. and so for them a live environment works better in a studio sense and that's why they went to a producer yeah. that got them to work live in that way but a lot of artists these days who are looking to be on commercial radio stations working to a click makes it a more polished pop sound even from the heaviest of heavy metal yeah there's still pop sensibilities within that music that then requires that shiny sheen in order for it to be recognised by labels, by radio stations and all of that sort of thing. Baby Shambles, Libertines, people like that. They chart it and they get great response but they are few and far between. It's, we're kind of in the age of the metronome for, for better or for worse in 100%. a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let me talk to you about your voice. So look, I went to a Millie Manders gig there recently and I just again was just like this instrument is just phenomenal and I appreciate it all the more because I have a sense of the work that you've put in to get it to the level it's at. It's not just this natural thing. Of course you have talent, but you're disciplined and you work to create the best possible circumstances for your voice to blossom. Can you tell us a little bit about what that work has looked like for you as a singer? Yes, you're right. I had a natural ability to sing and I kind of discovered that I could sing through trying to sing Phantom of the Opera when I was sort of 14. Um, and discovering that I could hit all of the low notes and the high notes from uh, the mezzo-soprano lead part. So my mother threw me into six months of vocal lessons uh, for a 16th birthday present. And from the minute that I walked into the room and met my singing teacher and started getting training, I would take everything that he said and I would practice it every single day and I was absolutely obsessed with getting the vowel sounds right, the vocal placement right, understanding the physiology of my face and <laughs> how that connected to my sinus mm. um, and opened up all of those airwaves and the cavities inside my skull and how you know that all then connected to the top and the bottom of my body. And it was definitely something for me that became an obsession. And each week I would go back and he would congratulate me on my progress and give me something new. And so there was this carrot thing going on for me as well because I'd gained <laughs> this extra little bit of information and as I say I probably only got actually I think I only had sort of six weeks to sort of four months something like that it was a very short period of time where I got the lessons and then I ended up moving to London mm -hmm. for college so I didn't get a huge amount of time with this singing teacher but what I did get was the five standard scales and some classical pieces, uh, namely Pierre Jesu and Ave Maria Bach Gounod. And I practiced those every single day in the flat above my grandmother's house while I was going to college. And when I did see my vocal tutor again, he was astounded that I had remembered all of these little bits of advice. So that's what I've done. Every single day I have sought to improve. And then if there was a particular vocal style that I wanted to do, I would intensely listen to what that vocalist was doing and try and figure it out for myself. And, you know, there's there's no ifs, ands or buts. If you want to scream, if you want to do something that's heavy rock with your voice, it is a time, consideration and experimentation thing. And I did hurt myself. I lost oh, my voice man. so many times. But yeah. those scales and that, that practice that I had, that discipline that I had to bring my voice back to a healthy place was what kept rescuing me until I found a healthier way of doing what I wanted to do with my voice and learning those techniques and everything.
been coming up at a time as a singer as well where we still had this artificial divide between different vocal styles where yeah. only classical is a safe yeah. style to perform. So you wouldn't really have had very, you wouldn't have had like the Melissa Cross, the yeah. Jeannie Lovetries, the all of these people to go to to find more about how to perform those techniques. You just have to Absolutely. keep trying. Yeah, I mean, we're talking, what, 25 years ago now when mm. I first started to want to get into rock and stuff and it certainly wasn't really a, a female thing to scream you had rock singers that were female but not many of them really went all out on a like a fry scream or whatever and now of course there's singing teachers out there that have the bible of screaming so there's actual full-on vocal lessons about how to fry scream and stuff and that certainly wasn't about when I, I was around mm. so it was definitely more about experimentation and understanding my own body in order to um, get those things right for myself. Well, that's the thing, every instrument is unique when it comes to singing. Yeah. And I think you're right that to an extent, like any style that you want to sing, it doesn't really matter what style it is, there's always going to be a certain amount of you need to take it away and figure out how it works in your body. Because a teacher can't jump into your throat. No. They can't feel the sensations of your body for you. Mm -hmm. You need to take away what's given to you in a lesson and work with it yeah. and come back and say hey that worked mm. hey this still isn't working you know it's always even if you have a very good supportive teacher yeah. you can't get out of that experimentation 100% phase yeah. you know I think another good example is belting mm. every, every teenager these days that wants to be a pop singer wants to be able to belt right up into their upper register well that's great if you're actually naturally a soprano Hmm. But if you're a mezzo-soprano, that harder. belt goes up a lot lower than, than a lot of people. So actually, I can now belt probably... I've got a top C as my top note in falsetto. We're probably going to come back right down to maybe a top F or G that I can really belt in. That sounds really high to a lot of people, but actually it's quite low in terms of being able to, to belt right up to the top of your range. Again, I had to experiment a lot with that. and. I didn't realise it, but my voice didn't actually mature properly until I was about 33. And so yeah. it wasn't until I was about 33 that I was finally able to belt right up into those upper registers. Ariana Grande, mm. she can belt right up into her upper register because she's a natural soprano. She's got that space. She's able to do it. Yeah. Other people who have a lower range, possibly the same width of range, they might have three or four octaves, but lower down in the bottom register yeah. and lower down in the upper register, that belt is not gonna go as high as they might wish it to. So singing an Ariana Grande song would be a lot more difficult for them. Yeah, or it's a very different technique. Yeah. Because you can do stuff with belting where you can do like a, a high belt or what's called a high belt or a contemporary belt from what I've read about it, yeah. where really what's happening is the vocal folds are in head voice configuration yes or it's cricothyroid dominant whatever way thin fold whatever way people want to think about that and the shaping of the vocal tract is what creates the belt sound yes, exactly. so for example if you're quite a low singer and you're trying to do a belt where you're imitating a high singer they might be in chest yeah as they're belting that note that might not be your way of belting that note a hundred percent yeah you know and i think that that's that's the other thing is like sensation, learning that difference between the sensation of a sound yeah. and getting the sound you want, allowing your voice and your muscles to adapt to that. Yeah. But you gave yourself a very long time to do that. Absolutely, yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I, I wasn't able to do anything else. Mm. I had to learn uh, various different ways of getting around certain sounds in mm. order to still sound good, but it wouldn't sound like the original if I was replicating. 
um, or rather it would sound slightly different to the original. Lots of people can replicate straight away and they're very good session singers. I've always been better at being an original singer because I was able to manipulate my own voice and knowing the types of layers and various uh, styles that I could sing. I could make original music that was very interesting to listen to and sound like my vo voice is doing acrobatics, but replicating somebody else's voice doing acrobatics just wasn't in my ability at that point. We're talking in my early 20s, when my voice still was very much developing. When you first start singing, a lot of people as well, and if we go back to these sort of Disney stars that end up being super famous by the age of sort of 16, They've been having vocal coaching since they were three. Absolutely. You know, so their vocal development would have been far in advance of me when I started singing lessons at 15. So by the time I'm in my mid-twenties, my voice is not even a quarter to developed in the same way as what theirs would have been. And I think people kind of forget that kind of thing as well. And they beat themselves up for not being able to do all of these things. And it's like, but think about what was your privilege in terms of vocal training? Mm. Did you have that privilege? And if you didn't, then it's no wonder that your voice isn't ready to do those things. Yeah, and also there's an aspect to it where it's also been this person's job since yeah. they were a child. It's been their job. Yeah. It's not even like, oh, you know, you had the chance to go for singing lessons from a young mm. age. It's also, this was work for them. Yeah. And I'm sure it was fun work and everything. Well, we'd like to think so. <laughs> you would hope so. You would hope yeah. so. But it's, I, I liken it to going to the gym. With some of my I was students. just about to say it's, it's a bit like being an athlete yeah and you get child, child athletes in the same way you get child singers mm -hmm. and no matter what stage they are at in their profession if they it is their profession they have the top physicians around them mm -hmm. to make sure that they are safe because quite frankly whoever's getting them to do it wants to get the money out of them for as long as possible well yeah everybody has because it's still a business we're well. interdependent as humans there's no yeah. escaping that you know yeah. if you're going to a voice teacher there's an economic contract there as well as a one of trust yeah. where you're hopefully you feel that they respect you and your instrument and you respect them and their knowledge but that's yeah. all there's also an economic contract at the same time of course for and sure. that goes for uh, whether you're a young athlete who is sponsored by nike nike want you advertising their outfits for as long as possible or being a singer record uh, recording with universal mm. universal are going to want you to be recording and outputting content for as long as possible. So it's within their interest to make sure that your voice is safe. Although I wonder sometimes, I know I don't know, I don't really know, I'm like I'm still learning about vocal environments because I've never been someone who's been in a room with universal executives or anything like that. I don't I don't know that they do give consideration to the voice in that way. I feel like that's something that comes from the artist's team. For sure, yeah. I think you're right. I think you've got to have the right team around you. But if I'm talking about like the vocal, uh, the recording industry, there's certainly cases if we look at uh, people like Adele, mm. she would worry me. Did she have that vocal support? She did have her voice operated on twice. We don't mm. know. Yeah, we don't we know. We have no idea. She might have had that vocal support. She might have had that um, She might just have training. a natural predisposition towards getting things nodules, like nodules. You wouldn't know. Yeah. Then there's always that question, did she have the team around her that was looking after her? You'd yeah. hope so because, yeah. again, that recording industry definitely wants her to be making oh, yeah. these albums because they're intergalactic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the money that rolls off those albums is yeah. astronomical. Yeah. Um, so you would hope so. But certainly yeah. if we go back to looking at athletes, there's always physiotherapists and, and mm. the like surrounding these top athletes because they're a product. It's, it's so fascinating. I think there's also an aspect as well of there isn't a perfect way 
to be a singer. Mm. There isn't a perfect way to be a teacher. And there isn't a perfect team if you are a singer. And I think that's one of the things as a singer that you do learn is that, and I, I say this to my own students, you know, if you go into a recording studio, most of the time, you will be the person who understands the most about what your instrument can and can't do. For sure. Mm-hmm. And I've been in sessions before where, now, not producers I've worked with, thankfully, because I've always known enough about my voice in those environments to be able to really work well with a producer and articulate what I can and can't do. But I've seen producers in other situations speak horrendously to singers. And they're not intending to. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get the best take. Mm-hmm. You know? But I don't think sometimes that, of course, I mean, when you know better, you do better. But I've heard lots of producers being like, that's flat, it's flat again. My instinct is, what's in the cans? What can the singer actually hear? Yeah. Can they hear enough of themselves to tune? Is the track too loud? Is the bass too loud? Is the kick too loud? Mm-hmm. You know, when you know how singers work, yeah. you go to those things first. You go, well, have you had the singer in the booth for three hours without a break? Because they're not going to be singing in tune by the end of three hours. You will have some voices that can. Yeah. One of my great singing teachers, Judith Mock, put it to me this way. She was like, your average soprano in an opera is doing 45 minutes of singing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Because that's a, it's a hefty task to sing in an but opera. But it's 45 minutes of singing over a three-hour period yes. of, of opera. So mm-hmm. that singer's coming out and doing maybe five minutes and then maybe a 15-minute section yeah. because they're doing a duet and then maybe another bit. But yes. it's never a continuous 45 minutes. It's not three hours of singing. I do an hour and a half of singing as a yeah. headline set with my band. And when I do five shows in a row with an hour and a half set every single night, it is horrendously taxing on my voice and I have to have two days of vocal rest and Mm -hmm. I mean barely speaking to my band in order to do the next five shows because it is, it's it's horrendously taxing especially at high performance and your high performance on stage is as high performance as you are in a studio there was a producer that I haven't worked with and one of the reasons, he is a brilliant producer by the way and he rolls out some of the best punk records I've ever heard however The comment was, if I get you in the vocal booth, I'll work you over and over again until I think you've got the best take I can get. And that was such a red flag to me because I know that actually I can get my best take within three or four takes because I know my material well enough and Mm -hmm. I know my voice well enough that the first two takes, you might be able to use them as double tracking. But the next three or four takes after the first two warm-up takes, those are going to be your best takes because that's where my voice is in its prime. I've got into the energy of the song. I know where the emotion is and I might need to drop in and do a few more takes of like the chorus or something that's really taxing. But otherwise, I know that my my best takes are there. So to be told that you're going to work me over and over and over and over and over until you get what you think is the best take, massive abusive red flag actually yeah because that's an abuse on my voice but that's you know there's a lot of vocal abuse in the industry for singers like you've got musical theater singers who have to do eight performances a week every week Mm -hmm. it's really vocally questionable i think actually in the west end now there's a production where they have role sharing basically which is great because it's like like having understudies kind of thing yeah but why you know if we're gonna have understudies why don't we just cast two different people Mm -hmm. you know cast them in the role let them do that and let them have the vocal rest that they need. Mm-hmm. Again, you're going to have some voices that can just keep going. Do that. Mm-hmm. All of us 
have been given different gifts in terms of muscles, <laughs> mobility, all of those things, all of those things apply to our singing, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I would treat that as a red flag as well, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Or at least someone who doesn't really know much about singing from the singer's perspective. Yeah, or even isn't trying to find out what the singer's perspective is and believes that they know yeah. what's right. And unfortunately, I've come across that level of not flagrant arrogance, but kind of benign arrogance where they don't realize it's an arrogance but they've been churning out these fantastic records for so long that they believe what they believe is right and so and there's going to be some truth strong. to that isn't of there of course there is where yeah. people are going to they them wouldn't for... be churning out amazing records otherwise and so while I, as i say i have fantastic respect for this person because they've churned out incredible records that i love to listen to but there's this level of kind of benign arrogance where they don't consider the instrumentalist's point of view. They believe that whatever they are going to do and make them do is right for the record. It might be right for the record. It might be absolutely perfect for the record. It might not be right for the person that's having to do the instrumentation. This is it. It's it's the person yeah. and it's the instrument. And I think when you understand, when you get into it and you start to look at what the singing instrument actually is, the building blocks of it, and I'm not just talking about in terms of concepts, I'm talking about in terms of what we know or what we believe we know from voice science yeah. from the amazing technology that we have from the mri scans from the tests from the people who've put themselves you know in for laryngoscopies and all this kind of thing so we can have this great knowledge when when you bring that with you you start to go okay i think i need to be a little bit gentle on this instrument it's the size of a walnut smaller in some people yeah. Bigger than others, sure. It but feels smaller once you've damaged it a little bit. Yeah. It suddenly feels like the size of a pea. It's it's a complex thing to be a singer, I think. Okay. Togumush Suspiogoncho, just a short break, because I want to shout out what Millie's up to at the moment. Um Aaron Moharagasera Nigerline on the road and online. So a lot of you by this stage are probably wondering where can I go and find this person and listen to their music? And that's an excellent question. So, Majulesh Amyan Sochil to Tomilier Instagram on the handle Millie Manders, M I L L I E M A N D E or S. August Motta and Sieve Ofigul Wetch. That official website address is Millie Manders.com. And there you can find merch, tour dates music videos links to where you can go and listen to her amazing work and i completely recommend that you do now i mentioned that millie is out on the road and she's just come back from germany she's got way more dates coming up around the uk and there's going to be a ton of them coming your way for next year so definitely check her out follow her bookmark her do whatever you can to make sure you are the recipient of this information so that you can go and see her live because her and her band put on a great show you know me, I'm a big fan of supporting the artist directly and if you want to help Millie as the person who kind of runs the band to cover herself and to live and be alive, please head over to her Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Millie Manders. It's a great way to see even more of Millie's creativity. She sometimes shares lyric sheets, does Q&As, handmade gifts, all that kind of thing. It's a really great community to be a part of.
Still to come on this episode of Crayla, Millie talks about how she advocates for her voice in different settings from soundcheck to the studio. We talk about artists and day jobs, and we talk about what it's like for the introverted parts of your personality when you are a gigging artist out on the road, constantly releasing music and putting yourself out there. It's fascinating stuff, so let's just jump right back in. What about live for you? How do you advocate for your voice in rehearsal, in sound checks, and in live performance? What does that look like for you? So, rehearsals. The way that I work rehearsals is I have a higher microphone volume so that my band can hear my voice. Mm -hmm. And I have a lower volume that I sing at. So I can then do three or four hour rehearsals. Yeah, I see what you're doing. Without damaging my voice. The guys know that when I sing live... I'm going to go hell for leather. But all they need from me is to be able to hear the tune and the structure from the song. Mm. All I need from that rehearsal is to go through the motions of my lyricism, the emotiveness, and also working out an emotive set list that's a story for the the audience. So a rehearsal to me isn't learning a song ever. When we come to a rehearsal, we should all know the song. What it is, is rehearsing how we're going to perform it to an audience and make it an exciting uh, piece of theatre. Do you put in, like if you're about to go out on tour, for example, or you're like, you know, tour is two months out, you've got mm-hmm. the set together. Do you do a rehearsal where you go all in so that you can rehearse that aspect of it? No, not really. The musicians do. Okay. And occasionally, uh, so this is probably going to happen for the autumn winter tour, our new manager will come in and will hire a studio with a mirror. Nice. And so we will perform against that and yeah. we will go hell for leather because we want to see what the audience is seeing. So very yeah. occasionally, but largely what we're doing in a rehearsal is scoping out how the keys work together Nice. from yeah. each song to each song, uh, where we can put in musical segues, where we're going to put in some audience interaction or chat or teaching them a song or whatever. So it's... It's creating that entertainment in a rehearsal. That's what we focus on. What is the audience going to get out of it? What do we want the audience to get out of it? And how do we want them to interact with us? So as I say, very occasionally, because really I should be saving my voice, we'll do an absolute belter where we're up against a mirror and we're watching our performance and working out whether or not this set list that we've created actually works in terms of performance. Um, Sound checks. I actually have uh, a song that I sing on purpose every time. And it's Shout by Lulu because it goes high, it goes low, it uses falsetto, it uses belt and it has some gravel in it. Yeah. And so it kind of does everything in a small amount that I do within my set while the sound engineer is getting the sound right out front. So he's having to work with all of these different levels of volume, texture, range and getting the sound right that way. That's how I work with the sound check. And actually, Lulu's shout is nowhere near as taxing as singing bitter, for example, where I'm screaming. So it gives me an opportunity to do that. So that's how I do my vocal. And then once we've got the band playing a song, we'll just do like a verse and a chorus of three or four songs, one with the sax, one with the guitar, one with the backing vocals, and then one to set one of our band members' particular monitor mix because they have tinnitus and they aren't on in-ears. So their monitor mix is problematic. So that's the last thing we do in a sound check. Yeah. But yeah, so those are the, the different ways that I work. And then obviously live. Let it go. I'm going hell for leather. <laughs> yeah. I'm still focusing on my vocal health though. 
Like yeah. a lot of people don't realise that, especially once you've had singing lessons, once you've had the opportunity to learn how to be healthy vocally, I'm constantly concentrating, especially when I'm belting or screaming, what is my vocal placement? What is my vowel sound? Are my vocal cords as far away from each other as they possibly can be while I'm doing this particular technique? Mm. So I'm still very aware of what my voice is doing, even right in the midst of having audience members scream lyrics back at me or whatever. Mm. Because there's always that little voice in the back going, you never want that operation. Yeah. You never ever want that operation. Yeah. You know, because your voice is never the same. Once you've had part of your vocal cord taken away because you've had a node, it's never the same. Yeah. When you come to respect the instrument that you have, you want to preserve it and honour it. Because things do happen in your life, like you have people go through quite drastic voice change after childbirth, yeah, menopause, those types of things. Yeah. And I'm not even talking about like vocal change that people go through during puberty. Although I know there are a small number of people who don't, but by and large, quite a, yeah. the majority of people do go through some form of vocal change. And yeah, once you've hit that stride when your voice is matured, you want to protect it. Mm. Because it's also an efficiency thing, isn't it? Yeah. When you know what your instrument can do, you're in a position where you know what you can do in rehearsals and what you can say for the stage. Because you can trust your, your instrument is reliable. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I always say to my students is, and, and this goes for all instrumental students, it doesn't matter what they play. When I'm talking about a vocal artist, I try to get every instrument instrumentalist to understand that a voice is your entire body. And so you're not just protecting your throat, you have to protect your lungs and your sinus and your stomach and all of the muscles surrounding it. If you have a crick in your neck or a back problem, it affects your voice. Mm -hmm. If your ankle hurts, your posture changes, it affects your voice. Mm -hmm. And so you're not just protecting this tiny little walnut, you're protecting your entire body. In the same way that if you look at a guitarist, they're not gonna sit there and allow their fingers to be broken over and over again. Because eventually those fingers won't work the same way and they'll have arthritic problems and won't be able to play anymore. You know, carpal yep. tunnel, the destroyer of anybody with string or wind instruments. So there's, there's all of those kind of things. And I, I just don't think that people really fully understand just how interconnected your entire body is with your voice. It's everything. It even comes down to hydration. Because if you talk about, you know, everyone knows, oh yeah, I have to hydrate for my voice. But you need to understand how hydration works for that to work. So I used to say to singers, about two hours before, it can take two to three hours. If Like if you've got food in your stomach, then there's more to hydrate. But I was on a lecture series the other day that Jeannie Lavetri ran, where she had two different medical professionals in mm. because health is a big concern on her courses. Jeannie, Jeannie Lavetri is someone who teaches something called somatic voice work. She's a real pioneer and, you know, a singer, so we owe a lot to Jeannie Lavetri. Um, but she had these professionals in talking about various different things and hydration was one of the things they talked about. And one of the women was like, yeah, you want to be hydrating three days before a performance. And I was like, oh man. I need to like tell all my students this because as she pointed out, you're not just hydrating your throat, you're hydrating your whole system. Mm. And your whole system is your digestive system, your brain, your muscles in your legs. Mm. If you are someone who's like using your legs a lot, like, do you know, your body is gonna prioritize hydrating the big systems mm -hmm. before it goes to the small ones. Yeah. And if you don't keep them consistently hydrated, your vocal folds are not gonna get a look in. Do you know, so like, of course three days beforehand makes sense, yeah. but even I didn't know that until it was pointed out to me. Yeah. You know, we have to constantly be it's humble. It's body thing, isn't it? And actually, 
quite frankly, stuff hydrating three days before. Drink two litres of water every day. You know, because if you're drinking two litres of water every day, you're already bloody hydrated. At the, the level that you should be hydrated, and if it's like above 20 degrees, you should be looking to drink two and a half to three litres a day. Just as a general rule of thumb, mm. yes, you will pee more. <laughs> That's also natural. In fact, I remember um, watching a documentary, probably, I think it was like Embarrassing Bodies or something, you know. Yeah. Do you remember those? Like, I remember that. Yeah. And I think uh, it was on, on one of those that the doctor said, actually, it's natural to pee every 45 minutes. Really? It's quite normal. Right. Like, or at least once an hour, because you should be hydrating. And part of hydrating is removing toxins from your body. And that's what peeing does. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Well, my mind was blown. Yeah. Like, because yeah. I, I pee a lot. Well, you're sorry, sorry, podcast listeners. Um, <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm constantly quite worried in, in the van about how long it's going to be before the next service station stuff because I do. I drink a lot of water. And my whole band do, actually. That's we've, great. All, we've all got our, like, our um, refillable water bottles and, and all of that sort of stuff. And we're constantly in the van, like, just drinking. We're not very rock and roll. We're not, like, piss heads. We're, <laughs> we're, we're far more about having a bottle of water to hand so, yeah. or tea. Um, peppermint tea is a big thing. So me and you met because we were mm. teaching. Yes. And this is another thing that we often talk about where I'm like, I kind of wish people knew this. And I will say, anytime I talk about I wish people knew something, it's not looking down on anyone. Like I recognise that what I do is very specialised. Mm. I don't expect people to have an intimate knowledge of what I do. Mm. Although I do think sometimes that the culture that surrounds arts encourages people to believe that they do mm -hmm. or like it hides parts of the process like I think a lot of these singing shows that we have hide huge amounts oh, God, yeah. of the singer's process and what it takes to mm -hmm. have a particular type of voice but for a lot of us who are independent artists we have jobs yes we have other jobs that we're doing because it's very 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 difficult to make money it's not impossible didn't say impossible but it's difficult to yes. make money from being um, a singer and the percentage of artists that we see with labels and that kind of thing who are actually making money on a bigger scale you need a larger scale mechanism to produce that level of money so most of us who are out there who are independent artists even in the bands that you think must be very wealthy and doing very well mm. we got jobs um, absolutely and actually there's a huge percentage of people that are signed to major labels that also have jobs mm. you know people think that just because you're with sony universal warner you know the the big three that you're going to be loaded and you're going to be running around on the champagne train. That's just not true. In the same way that we have a top 1% in the general population, it's only the top 1% in any record label that are earning enough money to just live and have extravagance and things like that. Actually, uh, I remember seeing tweets from like the lead singer of The, the Coral talking about having a normal job wow. alongside it, you know. Um, if you think of like people like Madness and the specials, they're not all just sitting around on their royalties anymore. You know, it's just not possible. So yeah, I, a lot of the bigger bands that I know, whether that be from sort of the early 2000s era or even later than that, all have second jobs. There's a band I know at the moment touring America mm -hmm. um, with The Interrupters. They're one of the support bands. One of them DJs, one of them teaches. And one of them does live music photography. Wow. Yeah. And they're all earning from those other things in order to be able to maintain their mortgages, their rent, whatever, and be able to do these tours. Yes, yeah. they're earning from the tours, but not enough. It's totally normal for, for musicians to... I mean, a lot of musicians have sidelines that are within the music industry, 
mm -hmm. but it's still sidelines within the music industry and not their main focus. Yeah, and that's very hard. Like I think this is another <coughs> one of the reasons why if you really love an artist, when they reach out to you to support them and you have the means to do that, it's really, really powerful and helpful when you do because most of the time when you're on a tour or when you produce a piece of merchandise or you produce a CD, the money that the artist gets from that goes to covering the cost it took to produce that. Yes. So like, for example, if I, you know, I've been out busking, I've been getting some offers to go and perform at things. And um, I have pretty much stopped doing gigs for free now. Yeah. Because so I, in a way, I don't really mind if that person hasn't heard of me. What's important to remember is in order to be able to produce the things that led you to me, I'm constantly needing to invest in what I do. So if I bring a band to a gig, for example, I am covering the band's travel. Mm -hmm. I'm covering the rehearsal space. A lot of people I've worked with in bands have been in incredibly generous to me and have insisted that they will play for free, mm -hmm. which is so generous of them. But recently I've stopped accepting that as well. If there's any money on the table at all, I'm trying yeah. to split it between the band. So I don't really ever even make even on any gigs that I do when I'm charging, mm -hmm. you know, because I, it's, there's, it costs a lot to do what we do. So a lot of the artists that you love, that you're seeing, are not only trying to put a full-time job's worth of focus into what they're doing with their art, they're also having to bring that to a different job. Now that's not something that we say for pity. I suppose it's just to understand how powerful the fan is. Yeah, for sure. And I, you're as open as I am on social media and things like that about how appreciative we are of that three pounds a month on Patreon yeah. or that ordering of a t-shirt or an album or whatever because it really does keep us on the road. If I didn't have merchandise sales I wouldn't have been able to pay for all the petrol and accommodation across the last tour. I don't think we've even broken even Yeah. because I have to pay my musicians every day, I have to pay me every day. Mm -hmm. I cannot perform for free because if I did I would not be able to pay my rent and I would be homeless because I tour so much that I am unable to do other jobs while I'm yeah. on the road. So yes, they, every tiny little bit of money that people put back into our brands, our music or whatever, is absolutely essential to be able to keep us making music later on down the line. Yeah, it's absolutely precious. And I think that's one of the things as well. I, I remember being at a party <clears throat> once and <laughs> I was doing this online course at the time to learn mm. more about like marketing and stuff. Because here's the thing about marketing. Look, your favourite artist isn't McDonald's. They're not Procter & Gamble. They're, they can't be running scams to manipulate people into buying stuff. Yeah. You know, um, but if you don't know that their music exists, you can't listen to it. And music makes people's lives better. So I was like, yeah. right, I think I need to bite the bullet and learn about this stuff. And I was talking to this guy at a party and I was saying, he was like, oh, what do you do? I was like, well, I'm a musician. And he's like, oh, what are you working on at the moment? And I told him, well, actually, this is what I'm learning about. I was finding the course really empowering because mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, I have ways to reach people that yeah. I didn't realize. I was finding this really exciting because for me, it's about that human connection. Of That's course. why we get into music yeah, yeah. and performing. I was like, wow, I found a new way to connect with people. And I told him I was doing this marketing course and his face, Millie, he looked at me, just the disgust. Really? Yeah. He was like, music shouldn't be about money. 
I was like, it's not, it's not though. I, I presume that he's not a musician. No, right? yeah. Because it, of course it's not about money. Well, in any business, there's going to be a contingency of people that's absolutely about money. Yeah. You know, we've all met somebody who's turned around and said, I want to be famous. And at that point, it really isn't about the music anymore. It's that they want to be on a pedestal and have adoration and lots of money. Mm. Fine, if that's your ambition, cool. And good luck with it because... Whew, that's a hard task. In essence, it is absolutely about your music, but unless you are able to fund that project, yeah. you will never be able to be that musician. Because it's either you play to yourself in your bedroom forever, or you find a way of taking it from the bedroom and showing other people. In any sense, that means money. Even if you only want to play pubs for the rest of your life. Yeah. Which is also absolutely fine yeah whatever level you want to get to if you just want to be a busker and earn your rent that way you need money to maintain the amp that's going yeah. to amplify to have a microphone that's working mm -hmm. if your instrument breaks you need to be able to go to if it's guitarist a luthier you know to to be able to have it fixed mm -hmm. or replace it if it's uh, past the pale so whoever that person was universe bless them with yeah. whatever you have yeah but my god the naivety of that statement yeah and I think a lot of artists feel that. Yeah. I, I did up a big diagram for some of my students once when I was teaching in the place we were where we did like a freelance module. Oh no, it was a marketing module that we were doing. And I did up a big Wider chart skills. for them. Yes, of different perceptions, different viewpoints. And I went from the fan's perspective, mm -hmm. artist perspective, and industry perspective. Yeah. And I just wanted to highlight for them that your fan doesn't need to know. I mean, I like fans to know what I'm working through. Mm -hmm. And I like them because I like them to know what they contribute to the music. Yeah. I, I like them to know that they're an active part of that process. But if that's not necessary for the artist, there's no burden on the fan to know that. I don't yeah. expect to understand all the things that a doctor does when I go to visit them. Absolutely. So I don't expect that of everybody yeah. who engages with music. They shouldn't have to. But the fan viewpoint is very different to the artist and very different to the industry Absolutely. specialist. Yeah, and what happens for a lot of us at the start of our journey, when we become artists, is we believe that the fan perspective has a level of, sometimes it's a level of moral correctness that comes with it, this idea that the arts should be above money, mm -hmm. the arts should be above marketing, it should mm -hmm. be above those things. If the music is good enough, Mm -hmm. And only if the music is good enough, it'll get heard. Yeah. And I th just think that life is a bit more complex like that. We all have those types of beliefs about things that we love that we don't do. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting when we were working with young artists, I really love working with young artists because I feel like I have a lot to offer them. But one of the things you can offer them is, so do you see how your fan perspective mm -hmm. is blocking your ability to share what you've worked so hard on? Yeah. To get it to people who need to hear it. I would actually go far, further than that and say your perceived perspective of the fan yeah. is blocking your ability to get your music out there. Yeah. Because often it's not even actually what the fans think. Because when I talk to my fans and followers, they know exactly what kind of struggles I'm going through. And if they don't, they want to know. They actually want to know because they want to help. And so... Uh, anybody that knows my music will know that I speak openly about my mental health and I speak openly about our financial struggles because actually I believe from my band's perspective it's more empowering to my fan base to understand our struggles and our journey and that has massively helped in 
obtaining further followship and further financial support from them to keep us going. Because it's about, that's what it's about. Yeah. If if there isn't a fan base, if there isn't a community supporting the work, the work can't exist. Exactly, yeah. You know, and I think that that's yeah. so powerful. I think a lot of the time also with uh, young musicians at the moment, and this is a generational thing, that will come to pass. Mm. But even students who are now 18 have parents or grandparents that understand the music industry from the golden era perspective and so they're seeing it from the perspective of well no you should just be the artist you should just be creating all of this amazing music and somebody will just come along and magically find you and give you a million pound record deal and do all of the marketing for you and everything's going to be an absolute gravy train for you because you're so talented and actually even in the golden era that's not how it happened. No, it didn't happen you that know, way. People were still, even people like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Specials and all of these massive artists from sort of 70s, 80s and onwards, they were all touring in a beaten up van sitting on speakers to get home and they were all sleeping. David Bowie slept in the back of his van in Tim Pan Alley every single night and rolled out a red carpet every single evening to go and do his shows to make him look like he was already famous mm-hmm. in order to become famous. You know, the Beatles gave their demo tape to every record company that they could find in order to get to where they were mm-hmm. and were rejected over and over and over again. But they didn't have to do their marketing because there wasn't anything like social media at that point. So it had to be part of the machine to give them marketing. Mm -hmm. But the record company would still give them millions of pounds in marketing prospects Mm -hmm. that they expected to have paid back. So no matter what industry we're looking at, what era, the musician ended up paying for their marketing. And so now you just are at the front line of it doing it yourself rather than paying the big machine because social media has inverted it on itself. Back then, fans felt like they knew those artists because mm-hmm. of magazine interviews and TV interviews. Yeah, It's still the same feeling, but they intimately feel like they know you because you're directly talking to them. I so, really like that, and I think when, yeah. I, when I did that marketing course I referenced, that was the thing that was so exciting about it for me, <laughs> was I was like, prior to that point, I thought marketing my music meant telling people to buy my music. Mm. But what I actually discovered was that I can let people in. Now look, everybody who's online, there's we have these parasocial relationships these days. Course, yeah. And you know, and I've, I've, to- I've talked with people about this on Twitch and stuff where I'm like, you know, there's parts of my life you don't see and that you don't know about. There's parts of me that you don't see and you don't know about. And that's, mm-hmm. that's as it should be. Mm-hmm. But the parts of me that you do know that I'm presenting to you, they're very real. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to me to take a quick pause here to talk to you a bit about how this podcast has come into being. This podcast is supported by my wonderful patrons on patreon.com and on coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com. I make this podcast as a way of deepening my connection and providing something interesting for my patrons to listen to. It goes out to them first and then it goes uh, to the general public. Um, after the patrons have had a listen I thank you so much all of my patrons for your support I also want to thank a special group of patrons who are contributing on a really wonderful level that helps me to get my music out there and helps me to keep making time for my music and my creativity so thank you so much to Alicia to Electric Monk Serenity Simon Wilkie Robin Milton Paul Taylor Musling Kevin Neville Karsten Hyken 
Fluffy Play-Doh Cat, Kalina Harmonia, Craig Kearse, Heartblood, ALS, Alexander Cahill, Lord Zine and Pilgrim Jonah Ferry. You guys are legends and I really, really appreciate you. I really appreciate your support. I would love you listening to consider becoming a patron as well if you're not already. You can check out what I'm doing on patreon.com forward slash Emma or music or coffee.com forward slash Emma or music. That's K-O dash F-I on that coffee URL. And once a month, I post a brand new demo of something that doesn't get released anywhere else online. I tell you about the inspiration behind it and I sometimes do behind the scenes videos and all sorts of other stuff. So you'd be super welcome to join us. You can either hop straight in or you can come hang out with us on twitch.com forward slash Emma or music when I'm streaming. Get to know a few of the other patrons and see if it's something you might like to do. I also really want to shout out to you Blind Boy Boat Club as well because Blind Boy has one of my favourite podcasts going. Blind Boy is um, a pretty much anonymous Irish commentator who started his career with a band called the Rubber Bandits they're like a comedy parody duo and his work is just phenomenal it's thoughtful it's interesting it explores everything from how the original recipe for KFC is in Limerick in Ireland and that's one of the only places you can get it right through to Irish folklore and mental health topics it's entertaining it's well researched it's authentic it's vulnerable it's just really good stuff if you have not yet listened to the Blind Boy podcast please do yourself a favour and line up one of his podcasts for your next listen you will not regret it he's great so thank you blind boy for everything that you do for encouraging people to be themselves to be sound and to invest in the artists that they love coming up in this final section of the podcast millie talks a bit about anxiety out on the road grief out on the road and that shift from passion to hustle how that feels and whether that changes your connection to what you do over time. I think a lot of us actually, as artists, segueing into a new topic, I think a lot of us are a lot more introverted than we appear. 100%. Yeah, right? 100%. I don't know if you've read Quiet by Susan Cain. No, I haven't. It's really good. She talks about introversion and extroversion. And in particular, how extroversion in Western culture has been pushed to the fore. Mm-hmm. And if you're introverted or you're quiet or you don't like to speak up in a classroom or this, that and the other, that there's just something you haven't learned yet. Mm-hmm. There's a part of your personality that is underdeveloped or underrealized, which is rubbish. Of course it is. It's rubbish. And, you know, also we have a lot of... She talks about this really well, how we can mistake because we we all exist on that spectrum and we're introverted and extroverted about different things so someone might see me on social media and see me being very clear in my presentation of this or that and the other but they don't know that like there's a gig on I want to go to the gig but I also really want to stay home (laughs) you know I like staying at home I like being at home with a book I like doing that it takes a lot for me to get myself to go out and be social yeah. So yeah. there's a huge introverted side to my personality, which mm. naturally doesn't make it to my presentation of my music. Absolutely. Do you yeah. find that? Yes. Um, and I think I've become more introverted as I have become more 
publicly out there. I was very shy as a child and I used to hide behind my mother even if the door opened. And I was an anxious child. I used to wet myself constantly in primary Aww. school. Um, so there was a lot about me that was quite introverted, but my protective mechanism was to be loud and to be extroverted because I found the louder I was and the more ridiculously bolshy I was, the less people gave me any kind of hassle. Wow. And also I became an angry person. So I was quite violent and I would lash out. A lot of that was because of some of the other experiences I was having as a child. So mm -hmm. I was acting them out in different ways. But actually on the inside, I was petrified of everything uh. and petrified of everybody. And now as my public profile grows, I'm finding myself able to become that introverted person again naturally. And so I love living on my own. I love having me and my cat and a book or binge watching something. And I can stay at home for days on end mm. and go for walks in the wood by myself for days on end without interacting with anybody. So yeah, there's this uh, strange balance. And I think my stage personality is still partly part of that introverted person that wanted to protect themselves. Mm. It's just been manifested into something else I really enjoy and wanted to do that is still my protective shield on, on stage. Because I still have panic attacks and I have anxiety yeah. every time I go on stage. When fans um, see me in, in toilets and things, like when I'm about to go on stage and I've gone to the toilet, sometimes I've just thrown up and I'll be there washing my hands. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, I bet you're really excited, I'm really excited. And I literally will turn around to them and just be like, I'll be excited when I'm on stage and I'm off and I'm just running to get backstage so I don't have to talk to them. On tour, actually, I was sitting on the side of the stage. Now, obviously, my band's not big enough to have barriers and backstages and mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. So I'm sitting on stage waiting for my band to start because for this particular set, they would start the song and then I would walk onto stage to say hello to the audience. Okay. And this guy was very enthusiastic about talking to me. And as I'm sitting there trying to compose myself, as the band is about to start, he's still coming over and his face and hot breath are right next to my face and he's talking in my ear about something and I literally cannot even concentrate on what he's saying because my nerves are above my head and I feel like the world is trying to swallow me and I feel like I'm underwater and I had to literally just turn to him, look him dead in the eyes and say, I'm trying to focus, please leave me alone. Not because I wanted to be rude, but yeah. that was those were the only few words that I could actually get out in order to express some of what I was feeling before being able to go up on stage. Yeah. It felt like my larynx was up near my nose somewhere. Yeah. You know, so being able to choke those words out was actually difficult yeah. at the time. So yeah, there, for sure there's this, there's this real balance between who I am on stage and who I am off stage. Mm -hmm. And certainly my personality has gone through many journeys oh, yeah. uh, to be able to come back to centre and accept the fact that actually I'm a, a quite a shy, anxious person. Millie, being someone who, a lot of aspects of you that are introverted and really enjoy your own company, taking on a persona, protective persona, that was, as you say, like loud and gutsy, was that a really exhausting thing for you? Uh, not that I noticed at the time. Right. I don't think, I don't think there was a, a real perception of what I was doing. It's definitely a, a, a more of a reflective thing to look back on it and go, yeah, that's definitely what was happening. Yeah. I was bullied a lot throughout my schooling. Mm -hmm. um, and so that it was protective from that perspective and all sorts of stuff. I think and when you're young, you don't really have an, an idea of what your energy levels are, right? Yeah, I suppose. Because you've got way more energy. Now, if I have to pretend to be anybody, it's exhausting. 
if for five minutes I'm having to pretend to be somebody I'm not, it's exhausting. But there is a level of me having to do that. Certainly, and this isn't for sympathy, just for those that are listening <laughs> to this, my cat died while I was on tour recently. And for anybody that knows me, my cats are my children. I chose not to have children, I chose to have cats. And so to lose one of those was heartbreaking. And I found out just before I went to do a sound check. And I had to, I couldn't do the sound check. My voice just, I wasn't even able to articulate anything. I just, I threw up the minute I found out from, from grief. And of course, I had nine dates or something left to do on this tour. And so I was having to sort of push myself through these shows and be this shining light of bubbly excitedness and advocation for mental health mm. and anger at heartbreak and all of this sort of stuff. Mm. And then go from that to the merch desk and be a smiley, happy, yeah. bubbly human being selling merchandise, signing things. And part of me was there and, and absolutely truthfully being really happy that I had so many people there loving the band, loving what we do, wanting to support us with the merchandise. And there really was a lot of truth to that. Mm -hmm. But there was part of me that was really being held back because what I wanted to do was be somewhere by myself grieving. And so during the days I was silently crying in the van because I didn't want my band members to take that on. I didn't want to feel yeah. like a burden to them. And I actually openly asked them not to touch me, not to hug me and not to speak to me if they saw me crying because yeah. I needed to be able to grieve in whatever way I could and focus on the next show that was coming up in a few hours mm -hmm. kind of thing. So that has been next level exhausting. Yeah, yeah. And I've only really been able to grieve that loss over the last week. I didn't get to say goodbye to him. I didn't get to be there when he got buried. I didn't get to collect him from the vet. So I lost all of that. So this last week, I've been really busy and I've had to focus on loads of stuff. I've had meetings with various people, be that my manager or my booking agent or our new drummer or whatever. And so I've still had to keep it back, keep it back, keep it back. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there's a, that intrinsic having to be somebody else, day in, day out, once you've had something like that happen, has been, yeah, it's been like a train yeah. hitting you in the face. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's exhausting. Yeah. She's fire, she's beauty, she's a mess on ketamine, forgot what she's been drinking, can't remember what she did with him, her face is like a rose,
there's a lot of aspects of performance and fan interaction that actually have the power to pull you forward enough yeah. that you aren't just a mess in a ball in the corner. Yeah. You know, and I think that's really, again, it speaks to how powerful performance is for people yeah. like us. And I'm not saying that everybody should be able to do that. No. I, you know, I say luckily, mm. tragically, um, by level of circumstance, I have had to work through tragedy prior to that tragedy and have chosen as a younger person to work through tragedy but not everybody has that level of quote-unquote strength. And I wouldn't necessarily call it strength, but... It's probably more capacity, right? Yes, yeah. because it's not necessarily a strength. It might have been to my detriment to do that. And I feel like possibly it was. So yeah. I started working for a shoe company and I was away in Nottingham and had two weeks of training and my grandmother died on the first day and it was my mother's mother. So I knew my mother was grieving massively and I went into work on the first day and I said, look, this has happened. So new company, new job, first day of training. And they said, go home, we'll get you to do the training another time. And I chose not to. I oh. chose to stay in Nottingham for two weeks by myself, eating in restaurants by myself, in a hotel by myself, and going into a job that I didn't know, in a town I didn't know, to train to work on Oxford Street for two weeks. And while that focused me, it also stopped me from grieving. Years later, when my last grandparent died, I think that's part of the reason that I was so well I ended up in hospital on the day of her funeral, because it was compounded. So yes. it's not necessarily strength, but capacity. Mm -hmm. And that capacity isn't always healthy. So yeah. just because I did it on tour, doesn't mean that it was the right thing to do on tour. There mm -hmm. would be other people that make the choice to say, actually, I've had this tragedy and I cannot do this tour. Now. And I think that that also needs to be accepted as a decision. Just because I did it doesn't mean that the next artist should have to, you know. So there's there's always different ways of dealing with grief, tragedy or anything else. Mm -hmm. I chose that I didn't want to let my fans down. Mm -hmm. I chose that I didn't want to let my band down. Mm -hmm. And I chose to limit my grief in a way that meant that I could cope. And you had the capacity to make those decisions as well. Yes, but I'm not saying that it was the right decision for me. And I cannot tell you that I won't have some sort of it later impact. I'm not in a place where I can analyse it further to give you that outright answer. Yeah, sure. So. And I think that's good. I think it brings a level of nuance to it where it's like something. sometimes some decisions we make and things we do are... We can't really necessarily judge whether they're good or bad. Yeah, they just but are. they are. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's a good way of putting yeah. it. They, they exist in the moment. Yeah. And whether or not they were the right choice to make at the time. Um, I wouldn't do it any differently. I can tell you that now. I yeah. wouldn't go back and change what I did. I yeah. wouldn't go back and go, actually, I'm going to cancel the rest of the tour. I felt like it was the right decision at the time. I mm -hmm. still feel like it was the right decision at the time. Mm -hmm. But I can't tell you whether or not I'll be impacted by it negatively later. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. it. As someone who's been performing for a long time and who's presumably gone from the trajectory that a lot of us do where we go from something that is hobby to up and coming to now I'm really actually working and putting everything I have into this. I've acquired multiple skill sets to be able to do this. Has your connection to performances and what you do shifted for you over time in terms of how you feel about it emotionally? Yes. In lots of ways, um, again, I couldn't tell you whether it's a negative or a positive, but yeah. of course, I would say that that's the same with any job that you have though. You know, I still love making music. 
I still love going out on stage. I still love meeting all of the people that buy my stuff. But certainly I question it sometimes, more than I ever did when I was just doing my singing lessons. Yeah. Or just sitting with a ukulele in a room writing heartbreak songs because somebody had hurt my feelings. And actually, a lot more, I'm thinking about what content I want to put in my lyricism not to appease. For me, it's very important that I stay focused on my music that I enjoy writing. But my shift there has been, what do I really care about that I want to talk about? And so now my content, of course there'll always be some heartbreak stuff and, oh, and yeah. personal issues and things like that because that's social commentary, that's your life commentary. Mm -hmm. But now I'm like, well, what other things am I really passionate about? What am I really angry about that I want to write about? So yes, there's lots of different focuses that have come as a result of focusing on my music and having backup careers and having hobby type stuff. And I, I think every artist goes through that. Mm. And I think every artist will continue to shift in the way that they look at themselves and the, the way that they look at their art, the way that they feel about their live performances. Because I'm honing my live performances so that my audience enjoys them, but I'm also honing them so that I enjoy them. Mm. They have to be fun for me because otherwise I'm going to get bored. And I question that all the time as well. Who am I really doing this for? Why am I really doing this? Because I feel like the minute that I have to admit to myself that I'm no longer enjoying the process, that's when I really have to seriously consider, should I continue? At some point, that will then become contrived and your yeah. followership will sniff that out in a second. I think you can really sense that really clearly in a lot of artists and a good, a good meter stick for it, often, if you've got some albums by an artist that you didn't like, yeah. that's a good indication that they're trying things. Yeah. <laughs> they're not just going to pander to you, they're trying to give you something that's true to where they are and what they yeah, want to try. Sure. Which is, it's funny because I, I did a song for my Patreon in December 2020 mm -hmm. and I wanted to write like an Ariana Grande style pop song, specifically that. Ariana Grande. And I kind of wrote in my post, I was like, it's funny because I think if I was to release this tomorrow, a lot of people would say to me that I was pandering. Mm. But actually, what was in my heart in December 2020 was an Ariana Grande style pop song. Yeah. And because I was on Patreon, obviously, that's yeah. what I was able to do. Yeah, I think the essence of anything that we do, and I don't give a crap what job it is, whether mm. it's artistic or not, if you're not enjoying what you're doing in order to pay your rent, yeah. Are you ever really going to be happy outside of that job? Yeah. If you, you know, can't find some contentment with it or balance with it. Yeah. If you're going on your two-week holiday twice a year to the Seychelles, but on those last three days you're dreading going home because you have to go back to your job, you didn't really have a happy holiday, did you? You know, because you're ruining it with the anxiety of going back to that job. And I mean, we could easily fall down the rabbit hole of that discussion too and all the cultural things that go with that about like constantly working all the time and your only value being in productivity and stuff um, but I think I want to lead you into our final and most important question which is can you tell us a bit about what's coming up for you so over the next few months my band's going to be playing a lot of festivals so if you're looking for festivals to go to then have a look on our website we've got loads of festivals and the tickets are up on there um, we've got another UK headline tour coming out in the end of September and we'll be touring right up until December around the UK so again if you want to come see us play we're probably coming somewhere near you um, and in terms of support 
If you'd like to support me directly to be able to pay my rent, <laughs> have a look on Patreon. I'm on there from £3 a month and you get a VIP group that is just dedicated on Facebook to my Patreons where I post behind the scenes every single day while I'm on tour and up to £30 a month where you get a handmade gift or handwritten gift every single month as well. So yeah, I'm on Patreon. Maybe I'll come to Twitch. You'll have to persuade me. <laughs> <laughs> I really want Millie on Twitch! That was what I thought. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, come find me. It'd yeah. be great to chat. Gurmila Mahagat, Guji Millie, Os Millie Manders, and the Shut Up, Igor on Co Ross Braggleshin. Darlin Fain Curran on Co Ross Shut in Ool. Najakrti, Ox Nadushlan Avinaguin, Mark Kyoltri, Ach Gulorella, Nishkilana Atagin, Ogus on Passion Atagin, Igor. On Kyol, Agus and Ali Natomich, a crahu, Tokhut, Sankoorlia, Ledini Marmili, Marner Tosh Shaktanagot, Nurnakwil alone, Dokasagot the Gordakuj Kyol, by Dokasagot Arish, Teresh Koralehi. So thank you so much to Millie. I think that that conversation we've had brings a lot of light to what it can be like to be an independent artist nowadays, the, the challenges, the difficulties, the skills, the passion. And just to say that it's, for me as an artist, it's conversations like this with friends that when I'm not feeling very hopeful, that restore and give me hope. And Millie's someone I do turn to when I'm having those low weeks. So thank you so much to her, not just for this great conversation, but for her friendship. Check her out online, support her music. You will not be disappointed. As always, thank you to you guys, the listeners, for bringing your energy and your time and your attention to this conversation. It's great to have you. And I look forward to sharing more with you next time. You have been listening to Krayla. Slantamo.